Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. My name is Rob Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick, and today we're doing Mad Love. That's right. This is a film that I've been excited to do on Weird House Cinema, uh, even before we we really formalized what this would be. Uh, now, before we get into the movie, you might be asking, well, what what do this be? What is Weird House Cinema? What, what, you know, you, you may think of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and of course you think of a science and culture show. Well, Stuff to Blow Your Mind remains a science and culture podcast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Friday night is our time to focus on weird films. We may also discuss science and culture on this show, but we put the weird horse ahead of the cart on these days. Uh, think of this show as the haunted hands of a movie podcast grafted onto the body of a science podcast. I like it. So this is a movie that's come up on Stuff to Blow Your Mind proper before. I think maybe did it come up in talking about, uh, I don't know, cutting off parts of the body and retaining memories or it, I, I think it's come up a few times because I had never seen the movie before, but I had seen the trailer for Mad Love. And the trailer is just wonderful because it begins with Peter Laurie sitting on a couch next to a dog that's bigger than he is and getting a <laughs> phone call from a from a beautiful actress who wants to tell him how great he is in the movie that they starred in together. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's <laughs> one of those wonderfully weird trailers that's just so different from anything you see today because it begins with this real, supposedly real-life conversation where she's like, oh, Peter Laurie, I loved you and M. Uh, uh, tell me about this new film you have coming up. And then you go to a more proper trailer. That's right. And for such a, a mundane beginning of a trailer, this is a fabulously strange movie, especially for what year? Did it come out in 1934? Is that right? 35, I believe. There, okay. Uh, 34, 35. Yeah, I, I think you're right. 35. And um, wow, what a strange film. It's got uh, it, it, it. one of the strangest things I think we should just sell right up front is there is a costume that Peter Laurie puts on in the later half of the movie that like is just hard to believe it comes from the era that it does. It, it, it seems um, very cybernetic. Yeah, it is, it is frightening to behold. But uh, but yeah, outside of that, there are just a number of crazy, weird elements in this film. And it has at least two eccentric performances. The first and foremost, that of Peter Lorre, uh, which we'll get into in a minute. But uh, you know what? I'll go ahead and do the elevator pitch for this this movie. So, you know, generally what we're talking about here before we get into discussing the players a gifted but deranged surgeon um, named Dr. Gogol becomes obsessed with horror actress Yvonne Orlock. And when Yvonne's husband, the famous pianist Stephen Orlock, suffers a brutal accident, Gogol transplants the hands of an executed killer onto Orlock. And from here, uh, everything just uh, spirals into this, uh, this kind of weird tale of psychological manipulation and delusion. Let's hear just a snip of that trailer. I, a poor peasant, have conquered science. Why can't I conquer love? <laughs> he shall be shut up when it's I who am mad. <laughs> but nobody knows that. Yes, each man kills the thing he loves. Ah! 
So one of the things that maybe we should start with is the title of this movie, because it doesn't really communicate what this film is really all about, which is like severed hands and uh, and crazy psychological manipulation. Yeah. Mad Love is, I think, kind of an imperfect title. Uh, I far prefer the alternative title. Uh, it sometimes it plays under, and that is The Hands of Orlock. Though, though that one also feels somewhat, I don't know, insignificant, given the focus of the film is, is not on Orlock as much as it is on Dr. Gogol, Peter Lorre's character. Uh, I, I also think, the, I mean, for modern viewers, there's also this, this, uh, this, this, we also have to take into to mind that you have this 1995 film that's also called Mad Love that many of us might have remembered. If you didn't see it, then maybe you even you just saw the, the trailers and it starred Chris O'Donnell and Drew Barrymore. And none of the plot elements we're discussing here is a completely unrelated film. Uh, I'm sure it's it's quite nice. It, it was directed by Antonia Bird, who, of course, directed Ravenous in 1999 and Ooh, Priest in 1994. But but yeah, n- nothing to do with Peter Lorre and the hands of Orlock or anything. I believe it was uh, based on a short story called The Hands of Orlock, right? Like Le Man du Orlock? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, this was by French fantasy and horror writer Maurice Renard, who lived 1875 through 1939. And um, I, I'm not, I wasn't really familiar with the, the works of Renard, but he wrote multiple tales uh, of mad scientists, alien beings, futuristic technology. Um, and this is just one of four screen adaptations of The Hands of Warlock. And it wasn't the first. <laughs> the first was, ni- was a 1924 silent Austrian film starring Conrad Veidt, uh, who uh, many of you may know from The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, or The Man Who Laughs, which you, even if you haven't seen it, you may have seen a still from it because it's often discussed as being an inspiration for the Joker in the Batman uh, uh, franchise. Yeah, a really otherworldly disturbing face. Uh, in Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, does he play Cesar, the somnambulist? I believe so. Uh, I have a hard time remembering the characters in Caligari as much as just the, you know, the, the, the breathtaking visuals. That's, that's mm-hmm. uh, certainly when it comes to silent films worth watching today, that's, that's one of the, the good ones. Anyway, Conrad played Orlock in, in that, but there was no Gogol. Uh, instead, there was a less essential character, a surgeon named Dr. Sarah. Uh, so it, it seems that by the time they end up making Mad Love, like they've they've adapted it enough. They've made more of a character out of the, the, the surgeon. The surgeon has become the center of the piece as opposed to just this contemplation of futuristic hand transplantation and how, you know, how we how that affects our, our idea of of body and personality integrity. Now, there were a couple of other adaptations of The Hands of Warlock. One was a, a 1960 French-British adaptation uh, that actually had Christopher Lee in it playing Nero the Magician, uh, which I think was just an—I don't know why you would— why you would mess around with the plot that much, but there you go. And then in uh, 1962, there was an American adaptation titled Hands of a Stranger. It starred nobody in particular. Uh, I think the the main (laughs) noteworthy thing about it is that uh, director Newt Arnold also directed Bloodsport um, and was assistant director on a lot of major films such as Blade Runner and The Godfather Part II. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But the basic plot element here of, of 
of what you could think of as transplant panic um, and the idea of a transplanted limb um, altering an individual's personality. You see that showing up in a great many films and TV episodes. Uh, just to name a few, there was, uh, there was The Hand of Fear, an episode of the Tom Baker era Doctor Who series. There is 1991's Body Parts uh, starring Jeff Fahey. Lindsay, Jeff Fahey? Yeah. yeah Lawnmower Man? Yeah. Uh, Lindsay Duncan and Brad Dorff. And then you'll find various horror anthology episodes, I think, that they, they either have this particular plot of, oh, I, now I have the hands of a killer or the hands of a stranger on my body, mm-hmm. as well as a related but different form of dismemberment panic films about disembodied crawling hands. Uh, I, I'd love to come back to crawling hand films in the future. Oh, maybe a future October episode. Yeah. Now, this reminds me of something we talked about not too long ago on on Stuff to Blow Your Mind when we did the episode uh, I Want a New Blood that was all about Mm -hmm. blood transfusions and how there were experiments in the 17th century, as far back as the 17th century in France, to transfuse the blood of animals into humans for various reasons, some of which were – not necessarily all that grounded in good science, but for example, you might uh, perform a phlebotomy because of the, the Galenic humoral theory of the day. You'd bleed a patient to reduce a fever or to reduce mania or something. And then there were some surgeons at the time who said, you know, what we should do is uh, take out the bad blood and then replace it with the blood of an animal that has the sort of personality characteristics that we want to put into the person. So if somebody is overly excited, they're suffering from a mania, you would put lamb's blood into their body because the gentleness and coolness of the lamb would come through in the blood. And this also, but this was also countered by people who opposed blood transfusions on the idea that you could create some kind of hybrid creature that like negative qualities of the original animal would come through in the new person and they wouldn't really be fully human anymore. So there's long been this idea that transfusing blood from one creature to another or transplanting a body part from one creature to another or one person to another brings with it some kind of personality characteristic. Yeah. Yeah. This, this concern over the integrity of the body uh, when we get into the, the, the transplantation of, of tissues and fluids and organs and limbs. And I think one, of course, thing to note is that while a lot of the concerns over, the, over blood have sort of passed away with the, uh, with, with the widespread use of blood transfusions, you know, you will find some religious objections to, to blood transfusions uh, here and there. But for the most part, it has become a part of our, our everyday life, you know, like you, even if you're not giving blood, Every day you may hear about blood drives, etc. It's just part of the medical reality of the modern world. Um, hand transplants, as we'll discuss a little later, uh, are far, far rarer. Uh, they are a, a far more complicated procedure and one that is not not every day. And uh, and also one that is, uh, you know, it seems like our, our ability to, to pull it off is still evolving. Um, so you definitely see that 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 same kind of energy in these uh, transplantation panic films uh, and other, uh, you know, b- uh, bits of fiction that, that sort of deal with this idea. What if the hands of another became my hands? Would they really be my hands? Um, and, and that, of course, is one of the, the key things going on in this film. 
I like the idea, though, of these science fiction films that take a very scientifically, or at least ostensibly scientifically grounded premise. This is about uh, medical science performing experiments at the edge of what what was known to medicine at the day, mm-hmm. uh, but it still basically believes in magic. Uh, this movie <laughs> still basically believes that like hands contain some magical essence of the brain of the person they came from. And it seems to me, uh, you know, modern science fiction d- doesn't usually operate on quite that level of belief in the supernatural. Yeah, there is, there, there's certainly a dash of the supernatural in this one. Uh, there, there is a lot of science fiction, you know, it is essentially like uh, science fiction is always about our, our hopes and our anxieties concerning uh, where where technology is taking us, and you know, at the time it was looking towards a future uh, in which we would be able to carry out uh, hand transplants or um, you know, certainly double hand transplants. Uh, we eventually got to that point, uh, but at the time it was just you know, it was pure speculation. It was just you know, we we may get to this point, and then when we get there, what will it mean? What if it goes wrong? And then the way it goes wrong is. Uh, you know, goes a bit more in the the speculative and magical direction uh, by going beyond like what if it doesn't work, but also getting into that area of what if it isn't me anymore. Now, if you have seen any image from this film, and I think there's a decent chance you have, it is probably the image of Peter Lorre in his Rolo costume, and we'll explain how that fits into the plot uh, a little bit more in more detail later. But in in this costume, it's Peter Lorre wearing this bizarre metal and leather neck brace that goes over his shoulders and goes up to his chin and is laced up with uh, like a shoe. And then mm-hmm. with metal hands and dark sunglasses or almost kind of welding goggles and a big black hat. Yes, it is a, a, a really nightmarish uh, uh, image to behold. Um, I, I feel like it was definitely an influence on the Gestapo agent um, uh, taught in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm-hmm. uh, played by Ron Lacey. Uh, and, and Ron Lacey gives a very Lore-esque uh, performance in that, um, especially when you, take into a, in, when you take into account the code and the hat as well. And also early character concepts for that character in Raiders apparently gave him a cybernetic metal arm. I feel like there's a there's some strong comparisons to be made there, and I and I think I have read that uh, that Spielberg went with Lacey because he reminded him of Peter Lorre. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, this is getting us into the the people who were involved in this movie, so maybe we should start with looking at the director Carl Freund, who was a cinematographer before he was a director proper, and uh, I recognized this name immediately when it came up in the opening credits. And I realized where I recognized it from was from the movies of Fritz Long. That's right. He was cinematographer on Metropolis, uh, as mm-hmm. well as the 19, not a Fritz Long film, but the 1931 Dra- Dracula film. Oh, yeah. Uh, was another film that he was cinematographer on. He was a cinematographer on, I think, 163 films, according to IMDb, and was active through the 1960s. Uh, he worked on some other universal horror films, I think, didn't he? Was Was he involved with The Mummy? Yeah, he directed 1932's The Mummy, starring Boris Karloff as Imhotep. Oh, okay. 
But the main attraction here, really, um, <laughs> the, 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 the centerpiece is Peter Lorre as Dr. Gogol. Um, this, you know, Lorre is the ultimate highlight in this film, uh, as the picture, I think, gives him a chance to shine just in multiple ways. Because as Gogol, it's, it's interesting. He's, he's sometimes quite dapper and sly, you know, walking around, smoking, um, you know, gazing kind of slyly at everything around him. Other times, he's this tragic, earnest, even manic character. And then there's this scene, which again, we'll get into more of the details on in a bit, where he he takes on the guise of this reassembled Rolo character, and he gives a really otherworldly performance in this this kind of science fiction within a science fiction. Um, and then ultimately, the whole plot just crescendos into madness, and he plays an increasingly mad character. So Laurie, I feel like, really gets to just trot out all the tools in this particular movie. I think that when Mad Love was first released, it was mo- sort of mostly or at least partially critically panned. I think people looked at it yeah. like, yeah, okay, this is childish trash. But even in those reviews, there was a lot of praise for Laurie because Peter Laurie is obviously, you know, one of the great actors, one of the great film actors of all time. Yeah. He was a Hungarian American actor of Jewish descent, uh, made his, made a whole career basically out of playing weird characters, just weirdos. You know, he had, he had kind of a, you know, a, a, kind of a weird um, asymmetrical look and uh, he had this uh, this wonderful accent and this kind of uh, you know raspy voice uh, the voice I don't even have to do an impression because you're hearing it now you may be you may already be speaking it if uh, out loud just to hear yourself use it I mean it's it's a universally known um, uh, voice you know he, he was he was a legend of cinema um, now this was his first American film on the heels of 1931's much acclaimed M uh, by Fritz Lang. And then he played, uh, in that, he played an accused child murderer. And uh, he would go on to have memorable roles in The Maltese Falcon in 41, of course, Casablanca in 42, uh, along with just a long list of great, memorable, and occasionally forgettable or embarrassing films. Uh, but he worked with such directors as John Huston, Alfred Hitchcock, Frank Capra. Uh, you know, he, he pretty much did it all. I mean, Laurie... I think is a great early example of someone who would be well known in their own right as a, as a powerhouse film star without being a dashing lead without being Mm -hmm. like, you know, an attractive actor or actress who would play the lead role in films to, you know, to be the hero. Laurie was often a, a villain or a strange character actor. And uh, I don't know how common it was at the time for actors like that to be a household name that was, you know, known and revered. Yeah, like you, you see footage of him, such as in that trailer, you know, like how, how many weird actors and character actors today can you even imagine such a setup, you know, um, where you're, you're coming fr- at, at, at everyone first with the celebrity and the, the, the natural charisma of the actor, and then you hit the, the trailer. And I think it speaks to, you know, one of the things about him is like he was charismatic. He was, you know, kind of dashing in his own slightly anti-Hollywood way. And like I say, he he also just became cemented in popular culture. I was looking around for uh, you know books about him, and I ran across the animated Peter Lorre by Matthew Hahn. This is a book that points out apparently seven hundred instances of animated cartoons using Lorre's face or voice or both. So this is everything from old timey cartoons where it's like oh suddenly a bunch of 
dead celebrities have shown up and and here's here's one of them it's it's peter Lorre. two just characters like on scooby-doo or whatever that that may not be peter Lorre, but have his voice and or his appearance and you see that still today like his the the peter Lorre impersonation is kind of like a standard impersonation one might turn to you see it for instance in uh in the the star wars clone wars animated series there's a character that shows up a bounty hunter named cad bane and um it has kind of like a a mechanically augmented voice but the the, the root of it is a peter Lorre impersonation and you can you can pinpoint it oh that's interesting uh, I, I like how that connects Star Wars to the, the classic old serials. Yeah, I mean, clearly, like, this is a, a guy that people like Spielberg and Lucas, uh, you know, they grew up watching these films. Like, he was, he was, he was, he was one of the, the, maybe not the top-tier deities, but one of the supporting deities in the pantheon of film. Now, there's another actor in the movie who I think is maybe uh, weirder than people realized when they cast him. I don't know. Mm -hmm. He's supposed to be the hero of the film. But this is Colin Clive playing Stephen Orlack, uh, who appeared in the Frankenstein movies. He was Dr. Frankenstein in uh, in James Whale's uh, uh, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And he has such a such a rat-like nervous energy in this film. It's similar, actually, to what you see in the Frankenstein movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in both films, he plays a, a an accomplished and and seemingly confident man who is then uh, riddled by 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 madness and trauma. You know, has gone through a traumatic experience and uh, is is continually haunted by what has occurred. And yeah, he seems to just. And I, I have to admit, I've only seen Colin Clive in in this movie, uh, Mad Love, and the two Frankenstein films of note. But in, in all three of those, like he just has this 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 wonderful raw um energy to him. And it and, and there is this sense of like tragedy too. I don't know how much of the tragedy is just knowing that for instance he would die in nineteen thirty seven, just two years later, at the age of thirty seven, and that he had a you know a number of demons uh, in his life. I believe he he um he he, he uh, suffered from alcoholism. Hmm. Uh but you know, whatever, whatever traumas he had in his life, you know, he, he seems able to have, have, have translated that into these performances. And so, yeah, he's perfect for this role as this, you know, handsome and accomplished individual who is then put through this, this traumatic situation and then, then pushed towards delusion by the, uh, the villainous Dr. Gogol. He has this energy as if he's undergoing fission. You think yes. that you're going to walk into a room and catch him just chewing on a corner of the wall. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, there's another uh, major actress in this film, Frances Drake, who plays Stephen Orlack's wife, Yvonne Orlack, the, the heroine of the film, uh, who, who plays an actress within the movie. But uh, one thing before we get into details about Francis Drake that I thought was interesting is uh, I read that originally this role of Yvonne Orlack was cast with uh, another actress, an actress named uh, what was her name? Virginia Bruce. And just clicking around on the internet, I discovered that Virginia Bruce played Jane Eyre in a 1934 uh, American adaptation of, of the Bronte novel. And in this movie, Colin Clive, the guy with the fission <laughs> rat nervous energy, plays Mr. Rochester. Oh, I just wow. – I don't know. I would have to see that to believe it because Mr. Rochester is supposed to be this you know dark, smooth, Byronic hunk. But Colin Clive's teeth are almost audibly rattling when you watch him. It's, <laughs> it's hard to imagine him really fitting with that role. Huh. Yeah. I'm, now I'm, I'm going to have to 
to watch that or watch some uh, some clips from it just to see you know what kind of energy he has in that because again i've i've only seen this level of energy out of colin clive now francis drake uh is, is quite good in this i i it's easy to, to lose sight of her because she is kind of sandwiched between these very manic uh, uh performances uh but she was a she was a star of the day she was only active from 1933 to 1942 uh but she she lived a long life lived to see the 21st century uh what happened is she married into the english uh, aristocracy and her first husband lieutenant cecil john author howard urged her to leave show business so she did um but she's she's really good in this i mean there it's one of these roles that you encounter the for for women in um in, in films of particularly of this era where you, you feel like it's definitely suffering from the limitations of female roles at the time you know like you know she's going to faint when the villain comes comes at her you know that it's going she's going to be saved by the by the uh, uh the male hero of the piece that sort of thing uh but that being said she's she, she's really good in it uh you know she's able to I mean, it's kind of interesting. She doesn't come off as a scream queen. I'm not sure if that was truly a thing yet. But that at the same time, she kind of plays a scream queen. I yes. mean, her character is a scream queen in the context of the film. Yeah, her character, Yvonne Orlock, is playing a scream queen of the Grand Guignol Theater in Paris. It's not mm-hmm. named as the Grand Guignol Theater, but the Grand Guignol uh, historically is this uh, tradition of extremely gory, morbid stage productions that would be done in Paris. And in this movie, uh, it's called the Théâtre des Horreurs, or I, I can't. I don't have French pronunciation, sorry. The Theater of Horrors. And it's got all mm-hmm. these creeps sitting in the audience every night just watching her get tortured on the rack yeah. and, and doing doing a marvelous job screaming. And uh and yeah, and so she she clearly has her fans. I think she's sort of supposed to be the the Linnea Quigley of her day. Yeah. And of course, those creepy fans include one super creepy fan. Dr. Gogol. Uh, so he is kind of like the, the um, you know, the, the ultimate creepy fan in this. A very successful creepy fan, but a creepy fan nonetheless. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, Francis Drake got out of acting because she married uh, a, a successful husband who did not want her to pursue further pursue her career. Cause that is the role she plays in this movie. Yvonne Orlac mm-hmm. is retiring from acting at the theater of horrors because she's marrying a su- successful husband and they're moving to England. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I having not read the hands of Orlock or seen uh, the, the previous uh, uh, adaptation. I don't know if that was was part of the original or like a lot of things in Mad Love. Uh, you know, if it's 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 uh, you know been uh, embellished and uh, and added upon. Now, believe it or not, there is another screen legend in this film, and that is Key Luke. Uh, you might know him best as the man who sells Gizmo to that kid in 1984's Gremlins. Well, I think he sells him to the kid's dad, right? The kid's. Oh, like wait, that's true. The dad gets Gizmo as a gift to give the kid. Or does he actually sell him, or does he kind of the dad steal him? Like after he won't sell him, I forget how that goes down exactly. I don't recall exactly. I mean, he uh, Key Luke is the proprietor of the shop of accursed items, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, yeah, and he he's good in this film though. It's a small role. He plays Doctor Gogol's. Uh, colleague basically he's the other surgeon that works at dr gogol's clinic yeah what i what i like about his role in mad love is that he's simply playing another doctor dr wong in a straightforward part 
um, which, I mean, it's kind of complicated to think about because for on one hand, you had a lot of stereotypical Asian characters in films at the time. And in many cases, those characters were played by non-Asian actors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Laurie himself would go on to play a stereotypical Asian character, Mr. Moto, in several pictures. And this is just sadly the practice in Hollywood at the time. You see... You know, you would see, and, and even the decades to follow, you'd see actors like Boris Karloff, Christopher Lee, Rex Harrison, Catherine Hepburn, Mickey Rooney, Alex Guinness, just to name a few names, you know. Um, and so it feels perversely progressive to have Luke in this role playing just a surgeon. Yet at the same time, uh, I, I read that Luke himself pointed out that he was often cast in, quote, good Boy Scout roles like doctors and lawyers, which which in this also entails racial stereotyping, you know. Uh, so we have to keep both extremes in mind when when looking at films like this, as well as with films today. Now, that being said, uh, Key Luke, though, interesting character, very long career in Hollywood. I believe he started out um in, in the advertising um, uh, realm of Hollywood, uh, like uh, promotional posters and all, and just became a staple of Hollywood. Oh, that's interesting. I never heard that. Yeah. Okay, well, I guess maybe we should talk through the plot in a little bit more detail. Now, we've already discussed the basic setup that Yvonne Orlack, played by Frances Drake, is this grand guignol scream queen that she mm-hmm. she goes on stage at the Theater of Horrors every night in Paris. They uh, grotesquely torture her for whatever play they're putting on. It looks like the play they're putting on is about a, a count or some you know wicked aristocrat who finds out that his wife is two-timing him and then puts her on the rack. And so right. they put her on this big wheel and start stretching her arms and she screams and then it shows these people in the audience where there it looks like there are a lot of couples in the audience <laughs> and the women are like not happy to be there and the men are like oh wow this is great <laughs> but she seems to uh be she seems to enjoy her job acting in this theater and she uh she talks about her husband Stephen orlack i think it's communicated that they are recently married. Stephen Orlack, again, is played Mm -hmm. by Colin Clive, and he is a genius pianist. So like when she's preparing to go out on stage in her dressing room, she's listening to a performance that he's doing live on the radio. And I think we're supposed to understand that they're very happily married. They adore one another. And the film opens on the night of Yvonne's final performance at the Theater of Horrors before she's going to move off to England with Stephen. But as you mentioned, Yvonne has a creepy secret admirer among the audience. Dr. Gogol, it is said, is there every single night in his theater box. He's basically keeping the theater running, uh, constantly buying this expensive box seat to watch her from. Because Dr. Gogol, uh, I'm not sure if we firmly established this, but he is a superstar surgeon of the day. Like he yes. is he is a wealthy uh, super talented surgeon who is clearly I, I don't I don't know if he's really performed anything, um, you know, miracle level yet at this point, uh, you know, in, in the timeline. But like he's out there saving lives like there's a scene where he has saved a child's life through his uh, his brilliant surgical uh, intervention. Yes, uh, it's it's communicated that he has a very powerful mind and very gifted hands, coming mm. back to a theme uh, throughout the movie. And so he saves children's lives. They talk about how he saves uh, soldiers who have been injured in the war. They don't they don't talk about what war. Uh, this is 1930s in Paris. So I, I guess that would refer to World War One. I'm not sure. 
But then Dr. Gogol finds out that this is Yvonne's last night, and he does mm-hmm. not like this. He's horrified, in fact, because he is obsessed with her. He's there every night to see her. Like, she says, I'm leaving, and then he's like, oh, what theater are you going to? And she's like, well, actually, I'm just moving to England. And, and he doesn't like this at all. He's distraught. But fortunately for Dr. Gogol, the theater happens to be removing a wax figure of Yvonne. They have it, like, standing <laughs> out in the lobby, uh, mm-hmm. and it looks so much like her that it is in fact played by her. It's just, it's just Francis Drake standing there, not moving. Uh, but they're taking the wax figure out of the theater so it can be melted down for scrap wax. And then Gogol intercepts this delivery, buys the wax figure of her, and he has it delivered to his apartment the whole time he's monologuing about the myth of Pygmalion and Galatea. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great scene because uh, like the guy, does, you know, clearly thinks it's creepy and Google, Google just, you know, offers him enough money to buy it. It's kind of like a a pre eBay, creepy eBay trans uh, transaction, you know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> very. Uh, but I, I don't quite understand how it's supposed to be like uh, the myth of Pygmalion or of uh, Galatea because he doesn't make the wax sculpture. He just buys mm-hmm. it. But he keeps dreaming yeah. that it's going to come to life and, and love. Yeah. Him. Yeah, ranting about the uh, Galatea. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I love it, and and I love that that it's just Francis Drake playing the wax uh, duplicate, and without any uh, like I don't think they did anything to her. They just have her stand there in costume, which which is nice because it plays in with what is to come later in the in the plot. Yeah. Uh, so next thing is we meet the pianist Stephen Orlack on a train, and there's, there's a scene that comes here that I love so much. The sausage slash dog scene is just amazing. So Orlack is riding in a train car. Across from him, there's a passenger who's just eating a giant sausage. I'm pretty sure it's a sausage. I don't know what else it could be. It's not a baguette because it shows him holding a baguette next to it. So I think it's just a huge sausage the size of a baguette. And is the is it that I, I don't remember this part of the the movie as much is um does the guy with the baguette have like a snappy American accent? No, 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 no. He, he's supposed to be French, I believe. Oh, OK. Uh, All right. So wrong, the, the snappy American characters are yet to come. OK, they're yet to come. Yes, yes. Is, no, the guy eating the huge sausage, I think, is French. Uh, and next to him on the bench in the train car is a picnic basket. And then suddenly <laughs> a little puppy pops up out of the picnic basket, pops up its head. <laughs> And the man explains to Colin Clive, he's like, well, it costs 20 francs extra if you want to bring a dog on the train. So I'm sneaking the dog on in my picnic basket and don't let the guards find out. And then Colin Clive wonderfully says, if my silence is worth 20 francs, buy it. I'm hungry. So the guy (laughs) cuts off a piece of his monster sausage and gives it to Orlac. And then Orlac immediately gives the sausage to the basket dog. (laughs) And then uh, the sausage man after that abandons all pretense of utensil use he like puts down his knife and he just gnaws it he just sticks the thing in his mouth and bites it like an apple (laughs) yeah i i never saw such a scene um (laughs) it's it's one of of several humorous scenes in this film that at at once feel completely out of place Mm -hmm. uh but also you know i wouldn't i wouldn't want this film without them like they're 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 interesting they're they're funny. I don't know if they're funny in the way they would have been received at the time, but there's there's something kind of slapsticky and amusing about them. I think it's supposed to be funny. In yeah. any case, whatever it was supposed to be, Sausage Man is my hero. <laughs> I want action figures of Sausage Man. I want uh, I want our fans to make us Sausage Man T-shirts. That yeah. 
What if it would have been a totally different film, by the way, had Sausage Man's hands end up um, transplanted onto Stephen Orlock? Oh my God, yes! Like, like I can't play the piano anymore. I can only grab huge sausages. <laughs> uh, but anyway. Uh, that that uh, preludes the the next thing we have to talk about, which is that a prisoner is brought on yes. board the train, and it is explained that this is Rollo the knife thrower, who is skilled at throwing knives. I guess that's a skill mm-hmm. I'd never thought about that much before. Uh, but what do they say he did? I think it's that he murdered his own father by throwing a knife mm-hmm. at him. Yeah, yeah, which will become important later on. Um, yeah, so yeah, he's a he's a convicted murderer, and he's he's on the way to the guillotine. His mannerisms are very soft and friendly and American. They specify he is American. He's not French. He just happens to be in France going to the guillotine, and he he's, he comes up off almost kind of like Buddy Hackett. Yes, he reminds me a lot of, um, and I'm sorry, I forget the actor's name, but the actor who plays Babyface Nelson in Oh Brother Where Art Thou? You know that kind okay. of. Old timey yeah. light. He's, he comes off as a charismatic, likable character, not a a knife wielding murderer. And on one hand, I, I I found myself thinking, well, what if they had actually made Rolo terrifying here? Would that have been <laughs> more beneficial later on? But maybe I'm not. The thing is, I'm not sure it would because uh, I don't know it, it, the 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 impersonation of a re um, animated Rolo that comes later. Is is very much uh, you know a, a, a Google creation. So um, I don't know. I guess ultimately I'm I'm okay with this particular character being a little a little hammy and a little likable despite being a murderer. Well, I think it kind of works because Gogol, if I recall correctly, has never meets Rollo while he's alive. Right. He only yeah. gets access to his dead body once it's guillotined. Yeah, uh, but but we should say before Rollo gets guillotined through happenstance orchestrated by Sausage Man, by the way, because Sausage Man wants Rollo's autograph. He apparently collects the autographs of famous people, including uh, father murderers. He, <laughs> he goes next. Uh, he goes next to, to, to the other train car using Stephen Orlack's pen. Uh, to try to get an autograph, Orlack has to go get his pen, and so by by these means he meets Rollo. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Rollo gets off the train to get executed. Uh, Lori uh, goes to the guillotining because apparently he always does. But after Rollo gets off the train, the train tragically derails, and Stephen survives the crash, but his hands are mangled and destroyed. Mm. And of course, he he's a pianist by trade, so he needs his hands to play. And Yvonne wants, to, so she's talking to the surgeon in the in the hospital uh, after the accident, saying, "Can't you save his hands?" And the surgeon's like, "I'm sorry, ma'am, we'll have to amputate." So Yvonne is desperate, and she realizes, "Oh, I've got this creepy admirer, Doctor Gogol, and he's the world's greatest surgeon." I can take Stephen to him. And so that's what she does. She has Stephen taken in an ambulance to Dr. Gogol's clinic and says, you've got to save his hands. He needs them to play. But unfortunately, Dr. Gogol discovers it is impossible to salvage his hands as they are. But Gogol, in his desire to please Yvonne, manages to transplant Rolo the knife thrower's hands onto Stephen's wrists. Mm, yes, he, he he decides to... To essentially try the impossible. There's that great scene where uh, he's in there with Dr. Wong and and uh, he, he, um, Laurie's character pro- proclaims uh, uh, an impossible. Napoleon said that word is not French. Yes, that, that <laughs> part's great. Yeah. So it seems for a while like all is well. You know, yeah. uh, Stephen discovers uh, that, that his hands work and, and everything's good until 
Steven starts to figure out that he can't play the piano anymore. You hear there are mm-hmm. these scenes of him sort of banging on the keys with with nothing like the uh the the deafness that he's used to. And he so he can't play the piano, but he can do things he couldn't do before such as accurately throw knives and pins so that they stick into doors and walls. Yes. Uh, how does he discover this? I think he just gets angry. So yeah. th- this is part of the the personality bleed over too, because there's the idea that his hands have the skills of Rollo with throwing a knife, but they also have Rollo's murderous uh, inclinations that he's mm-hmm. suddenly violent when he wasn't before. Now this leads to all kinds of problems uh, because he can't play piano. Suddenly they're in want of money and, and they're uh, and uh, Steven and Yvonne's position just sorts to, fall apart and Yvonne goes to Gogol for help. Uh, Gogol of course uh, demands her love and she won't give it to him. And then in, in a fit of rage, Gogol decide, decides that he needs to drive Stephen mad. Yes. So his plan is that he's going to commit murders and then assume the identity of Rollo, the knife thrower who Stephen knows was executed and try to convince Stephen that, Stephen himself did the murders that the Gogol actually did by telling him the truth that he has Rollo's hands on his wrists and using as proof the fact that he, Gogol, pretending to be Rollo, is now still alive because Gogol transplanted his dead head onto another person's body. And this is when Gogol as Rollo dons that amazing outfit with the neck brace and the, the leather and the steel hands. Yeah, and it is just—it is a really haunting scene. It is um, if, if you if you don't have the, I don't know, the courage or the time to watch the full movie. I think um, uh, I think there's a, there's some cl- there's a clip of this, an official clip of just this scene online, and yeah, it's wonderful. Um, it's um, it, 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 so there's the costume level of it, which we've described already, but also um, Gogol as Rollo is speaking in this this faint whisper, this raspy whisper. You know, the the voice of one whose uh, whose head has been refused with his body, and he's he feels at once like this 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 strange perverse miracle of modern surgery but also he's like a ghost he's like a wraith uh brought back to warn uh, uh orlock of what is to come i am a little confused about gogol's plan or the logic of it so i think what he he thinks is that if he can falsely convince steven that he did murders mm-hmm. this will cause steven to continue to to actually do murders Right. Or get caught by the police, either by turning himself in or just by doing more murders. Yeah. Either way, it's a win for Gogol because then he can swoop in and, you know, he and Yvonne will be married and live happily ever after. Yeah. Uh, he, he But he sort of neglects to consider the fact that Yvonne doesn't want to marry him. He, Gogol is not thinking clearly at this point. Right. He, he doesn't have a good head for, for romance. Um, no. You know, he asked that question at one point. Uh, he says, I, a poor peasant, have conquered science. Why can't I conquer love? And I mean, clearly, he, he has a great head for science, but not for love. He doesn't really understand how love works. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, he can certainly use his technical skills and his brilliant mind to put the, the, the hands of, uh, of a dead man onto the, the hands of a, of, of a survivor. But uh, in terms of transplanting Yvonne into his life, uh, that is beyond his ability. But he still has this wonderfully, perhaps overly complex plan to pull it off. Um, it may sound a bit overly complex here, but I don't know. I feel like in the within the context yeah. of this plot, uh, in, the, in the context of this movie, it, it works. You just kind of have to roll with it, but it yeah, works. Yeah, it just sort of skips lightly over the top of the water and then moves on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, of course, Stephen is implicated in these murders that Gogol did, or at least one murder. I think maybe it's just one, actually. And he mm-hmm. so he's arrested by the police, and Yvonne goes to Gogol's apartment to confront him. But then while she's there, she discovers his evil plan. That's right, because he's coming back in the Rolo costume, cackling to himself about how about basically reveals his entire plot and Uh, then taking the costume off. And what does she do to hide? Oh, wait, no. Before we get there, I've got to say about when he's explaining the plot, he's not even doing the Bond villain explaining it to Bond. He's doing the Uh Bond villain explaining his whole scheme to no one. He's just explaining it to the ceiling. Well, there's a (laughs) parrot there, right? Isn't there a bird? Oh, maybe it is the parrot. There is a bird. Yeah. Okay. I take it back. Uh, Maybe he's explaining to the bird. But yes. So he's coming home. He's coming into his study. She's there because she had come to confront him. And then she discovers she she has to hide. And in this suspenseful final scene, she has to pretend to be the wax sculpture of herself, which is a fantastic set piece. And it's it's really well shot, too. There's this wonderful sort of long uh, shot where they come around the corner. It's go, like Gogol's point of view. And there she is standing there as the wax uh, sculpture. It's, it's, it's a beautiful moment in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the Stephen and the police come to the rescue. Uh, I feel like it has a, a kind of disappointing conventional ending where Stephen in the climax puts his new hands to good use, you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then it's just like, okay, uh, Gogol's dead. And then Steven and, and Yvonne embrace, and then just immediately the end happily ever after. (laughs) (laughs) This is the thing about a lot of uh, these old movies. It seems like they wrap up very fast. They don't have any kind of interesting coda that puts a new spin on this. Like, it's like this movie, it's like the moment the villain is defeated, uh, the two main characters embrace and kiss and then music swells and it's over at the end. Well, you know, bladders were much smaller back then and (laughs) (laughs) you can only make it so far through a film. Speaking Um, of bladders, there are some great side plots we haven't even mentioned. Actually, I don't know if they're great. There are some side plots that exist. Uh, involving an alcoholic housekeeper who's always yeah. trying to get some brandy and a fast-talking American reporter played by Ted Healy, who's the oh, kind of guy yeah. who, you know, he sounds like a baseball announcer of the 1930s and yeah. he's always using strange mannerisms and figures of speech. Uh, like there's a scene where uh, uh, where where Rollo is about to be executed by guillotine and uh, he's there to cover it. I don't know why this this American reporter is there to cover the guillotining of a criminal there in Paris. But, uh, he's, he's explaining to the police commissioner that he's like, look, you know, you gotta have gin for executions. You gotta have champagne for this. And (laughs) I can't reproduce it, but it's, it's pretty good. 
Yeah, but it's, it's a kind of snappy, uh, snappy American accent that you hear in these old films. And, and you end up wondering, like, did people ever actually talk like this? Or is this just this sort of vaudevillian trope? Because I believe Healy was a, like a vaudevillian comic actor. I yeah. think he had ties to the Three Stooges even. Um, he was part I, of that whole syndicate. I think it, it, it is playing up the transatlantic accent of the time, mm-hmm. which was like not an organic accent, but an accent that was sort of a... Uh, a product of training. Yeah. And so it was taking that accent and then accentuating it to unreal levels. Like what it's kind of like what a lot of like pop country musicians do with their Southern accents in music today, mm-hmm. where you're taking something that is a real accent, but just playing it up to a point that it's a parody of itself. Yeah, I think so. It's kind of caught in a, uh, like a vicious circle of self parody and you end up with this, just I, I have to say, kind of obnoxious performance. That's just it's just full of one-liners and zingers. And I, I mean, I, I wouldn't take it out. It's it's part of this film, but it's it. I feel like the modern um, uh, parallel here would be an otherwise serious film, and suddenly Rob Schneider shows up <laughs> and is doing some sort of of, of goofy lame character. Uh-huh. Uh, meanwhile, you have like Peter Lorre and Colin Clive, you know, doing their own crazy but uh, but ultimately seriously grounded performance. All right, so uh, as, as we've been pointing out, this film really centers around hand transplantation. So let's talk a little bit about the about the science of hand transplantation and also the the history of of hand transplantation. All right, well, hand transplantation is it's interesting how this movie fits into the history of it because hand transplantation is absolutely real now, but it was not at the time this film was made. Mm-hmm. I was looking at a paper called the history and evolution of hand transplantation published in the journal hand clinics in 2011 by uh, Furuhar et al. And so one thing uh, to note is that hand transplantation is an example of a broader class of surgeries that are now known as vascularized composite allotransplantation or sometimes vascularized composite allograft, uh, VCA for short. And this basically means the grafting of a whole unit organ composed of multiple kinds of tissue. So that would mean muscles, tendons, circulation, bones, nerves, skin. It's it's a lot of different stuff and it all has Mm -hmm. to connect properly to be functional, which is not easy. It's sometimes described as like there, there is a there's this ascending ladder of the uh, priorities of things that you have to connect and, and in like what order of importance they come. And it does rely on very advanced techniques in, in microsurgery. Now, obviously, the surgery involved to connect a hand to an arm segment in a functional way is really complicated. But it's not just the complexity of the surgery. One of the main barriers to successful hand transplantation in history, or at least in previous decades was the insufficient development of immunosuppression, uh, Mm -hmm. without which the immune system will revolt and reject the new organ. Uh, The first ever hand transplant that we know of was performed by a Dr. Robert Gilbert in Ecuador in 1964, and this transplant did not really work. Uh, So the authors here explain that about three weeks after the initial graft, the transplanted hand had to be amputated because there was an acute uh, immune rejection. And the authors say that, quote, this early experience, along with similar failures in animal models, 
led researchers to believe that skin-bearing transplants were prohibitively immunogenic. A 30-year period of stagnation followed. But then in the 1980s and 90s, new medications came online that made hand transplantation seem viable again. Uh, and they list a few examples here, including uh, calcineurin inhibitors, cyclosporin A, tacrolimus, and MMF. And drugs like these open the doors to multiple kinds of VCA. Uh, the, the authors here cite a couple of the first successful hand transplants in the late 1990s, one of which actually was in France by a, oh. a surgeon named Jean-Michel Dubernard and his colleagues in, uh, in Lyon in 1998. So this first patient in 98 received a single hand transplant. The surgery apparently took 13 hours and the operation was at first successful, but unfortunately the patient did not follow instructions for his immunosuppression and physical therapy. And he eventually left the care of the team in Lyon and this had uh, disastrous consequences. And he uh, had to have the hand amputated in 2001. Uh, presumably it, it doesn't, it didn't say why, but presumably this was because of immune rejection. And then the same group in France uh, under, under Dubernard performed the world's first bilateral hand transplant. So both hands in January 2000, here the patient was a painter, 33 years old, who lost both of his hands when he was experimenting with a homemade rocket and it exploded. Oh, wow. Now, at the time of this review that was published in 2011, the authors believed that more than 65 hand transplants had been carried out worldwide. Most of them at this point were successful. Some had had to be amputated due to re immune reactions, but most of them were successful. Uh, I haven't found a more recent estimate, but surely the number is a good bit higher than that now as therapies have continued to evolve. You know, uh, Dr. Cody K. Azari is a big name in, in hand transplantation, having served as one of the lead surgeons on six hand transplantation operations, including the first double hand transplantation and uh, first uh, arm transplantation performed in the United States. Uh, I got to hear him give a, um, a talk for the moth in New York City several years ago as part of the, the, the World Science Festival. And you can listen to this at themoth.org or look it up on, on YouTube, I believe. Uh, but it was a really cool talk because he, he talks about just the intensity of the surgery. And I remember feeling like, like it, I, I either got the impre impression or maybe he even used this comparison himself that, you know, got the idea that this was like scaling a mountain. You know, it was like the surgical, um, you know, again, all the different uh, uh, types of connections that have to be made, uh, you know, all the concerns that have to be taken into place to pull this off. Uh, you know, it's, it's really impressive. And that's without even getting, again, into what comes afterward. You know, it's not a situation where you wake up Stephen Orlock and say, hey, you got new hands. And he's like, okay, I'm going to go and try and play piano. And like, no, it's uh, there, you know, there's a, a drug regime that has to be followed. And physical therapy is a huge part of of adapting to life post-transplantation. Yeah. And uh, some of the sources I was looking at emphasize the importance of, of the psychology, uh, like psychological screening and the psychology of how people adapt to hand transplants. I mean, for multiple reasons, but one of which is following through after the surgery is incredibly important as was for example made clear by that first case where the guy was not taking his his immunosuppression drugs properly it was not following through on physical therapy and that eventually led to the the hand being rejected yeah on the psychological front i was looking at a 
uh, a paper from 1999 by Martin M. Uh, uh, Klapecki, MD, titled Transplantation in the Human Hand, Psychiatric Considerations. Uh, and the author here points out that one has to take into account the psychology of the hand as well as the, quote, psychodynamic issues in limb loss and the psychological integration of a transplanted hand. Uh, he wrote, quote, potential candidates for hand transplantation should receive a psychiatric interview and projective testing to assess the patient's adaptability to body image, level of personality organization, and capacity for pathological regression. And one of the things that he was pointing out is that at the time, anyway, the, the, there wasn't as much of this, like, just, there, you saw this with the various uh, levels of organ transplantation, mm-hmm. but uh, there, there apparently wasn't as much of it in place for hand transplantation. Yeah, and this uh, now uh, hopefully the, that that will look for hand transplantation is just continuing to get better. It seems like it is, but uh for at least going back to say 10 or 20 years ago, I was seeing papers that were talking about the pros and cons of hand transplantation saying, well, you could potentially get this quality of life uh, increase like with a transplanted hand as opposed to prosthetics, but you know, obviously there are major health consequences, like if it is rejected. So there, there are big risks involved as well. And there, it seems like over time, the, the pros are starting to build up and the cons are decreasing. But for a while, I think there was serious debate over like whether this was a reasonable surgery to perform given all the, the risks and downsides. Yeah, I mean, you can find sort of outstanding examples in either direction. Uh, so take um, bilateral hand transplantation, for example. You know, someone who's lost both hands and they get two hands transplanted on. For instance, you, some of you might remember in 2016, uh, there was the case of American um, double hand transplant recipient Jeff uh, Kepner, who made headlines saying that he wanted his own transplanted planted hands removed. Uh, that uh, he had received like 10 years earlier, uh, just and, and it wasn't something where he was blaming the doctors like he, he he's, he's communicated that, you know, he knew it was a risk to try this out, but he you know wanted to give it a go. But at this point, he was saying, like, I just don't have functionality in these hands like I was better with uh, uh, with with the uh, with prosthesis instead. And I would prefer to go back, if possible, to what I had before. Um but then on the other hand, you have uh, the case of an Austrian police officer named Theo Klez, who was able to return full to full-time work after bilateral hand transplantation. Uh, so this is very much a success story. And that story is even, even more dramatic uh, because Klez was a bomb disposal expert working to defuse a bomb uh, placed in a school by Austrian mass murderer Franz Fuchs, who uh, uh, killed four and injured 15 in five waves of mail bombs, I think a total of 24 mail bombs. So a rather dramatic case, but uh, ultimately a, a surgical success story, I understand. So it seems like the transplantation of hands has has made great strides and and I think is continuing to to do so. Uh, the transplantation of heads is another theme mm-hmm. in the movie, though I don't think in the film anyone actually gets their head transplanted. It's just that Dr. Gogol comes up with this story to try to drive uh, uh, drive Colin Clive insane by saying that uh, he is Rollo after having undergone a head transplant, which didn't actually happen. It's just Gogol in disguise. Right. And and again, it it's almost, almost feels like a tragedy that we have created – such a fantastic character that is itself a fantasy within the context of the film. But I don't know. It's still, it's still perfect. It's still perfect. Yeah. Um, 
Now, every few years, it seems like you hear news stories about a doctor or surgeon somewhere who claims that they can perform a head transplant or however you want to call it. We could talk about the terminology. It just never seems to materialize. Uh, I, I don't know how realistic the idea of a head transplant with modern medicine is. Yeah, it's uh... – if if we can compare hand transplantation to to scaling a mountain then then ultimately yeah head transplantation or or whole body transplantation uh, is the other way of referring to it this would be the mount everest like this would be the the ultimate peak because maybe more like scaling a mountain on the moon <laughs> yeah yeah it is uh it would be the ultimate surgical achievement uh, because this is this is something you know we have to face. Like no human being has ever truly survived decapitation. I mean, certainly there are arguments and various observations about how long consciousness seems to remain in a freshly cut head, but this is only brief. Yeah, um, you, you You're know, in terms seconds. Right. In terms of keeping it alive in a jar or on a pan, uh, as we see in a whole other genre of sci-fi films uh, from the uh, especially the, the 20th century, um, you know, that is that is thus far beyond us, as certainly is the idea of taking a head and attaching a body to it so that we the the head can use the body and and this is where it gets kind of weird like oh not only is this like not a surgical reality it's still within the realm of fantasy like it even it even further accentuates that question of what is self what is body you know the idea of head and body it because it is a quite literal um invocation of the whole you know we've talked about the the, the mind body connection and how it is perhaps unhealthy to think of ourselves as a brain attached to a body, a head on a body, like a, a rider on a horse, when mm -hmm. instead we are this integrated system. We are essentially a centaur um, of mind and body. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you have an example like this, or at least a, a theoretical idea like this, that you could take the head and attach it to another body, and this would be the new individual. Uh, you know, it, it does raise all sorts of questions and, and, uh, and, and even nightmares in the, in the human mind. It does remind me of the Daniel Dennett short story, Where Am I, that we've talked yeah. about on the show before. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it raises all sorts of, of questions, big questions and uh, and small questions, uh, um, thoughtful questions and, and grotesque ones. Um, I feel like there's there's at least one episode, right, where there's a head transplantation on The Simpsons. Uh, there's like a Treehouse of Horror oh, where... Oh, that sounds right. Yeah. the What they put... Homer's brain in a robot, and the robot f uh, falls onto Mr. Burns, and then Mr. Burns' head is transplanted onto Homer's body. Why was I imagining uh, Flanders' head on Homer's body? That doesn't sound <laughs> – that's not right, is it? Maybe they got around to that later. There are, there are a lot of treehouses I haven't seen. Well, yeah, with this point at The Simpsons, basically you can just like throw out random ideas, and then it turns out they already did that in an episode and probably <laughs> maybe did it more than once. Now, uh, in terms of surviving decapitation, there are animals that can survive longer, certainly longer than us without a head. It's often pointed out that decapitated cockroaches die of starvation rather than, uh, uh, than, than just simply the loss of their head. But there you're um, talking about which one are you talking about surviving, the head or the body? <laughs> yeah, again, it kind of messes with our conception of what a, an individual, even an individual cockroach is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of like that whole running around like a chicken with the head cut off, which is alluding to, you know, observations that a, a chicken seems to, the chicken's body seems to live longer than a human body without a head. Uh, but 
is the body living? You know, is the it, head lit? It, it gets complicated. I could be mistaken about this because this is just off the top of my head, so to speak. But uh, I think the reason that's observed with chickens is because the brain basically isn't fully removed. Like you can sort of mm. decapitate a chicken, but the brain stem is still there and functioning. It's just the mm. upper part of the brain that's been taken away. I might be wrong about that, but that's what I recall. Now, in animals, blood vessel reattachment has been achieved. But a full human head reattachment would require a complete reattachment of vessels, uh, muscles, etc. Everything that's in, involved in transplanting a hand, but also uh, the spinal cord as well. Um, and we'd need to be able to sustain the head while all of this was happening. You know, again, how do we keep a head alive after it is removed from the body? Uh, and then how would we keep it alive long enough to get it reattached? Um, so, uh, so yeah, we're simply not there yet in terms of reattaching a uh, head to a body. Though, though, I love the way that it is re- it is created by Gogol in the film. You know, mm-hmm. the idea of this brace being used uh, to achieve a kind of like rough head transplantation, like. He seems to have approached it with a, you know, with a thoughtful mind, like, oh, well, this would be a very difficult thing to pull off. The results would not be pleasant. Um, how, would I, how would I depict this uh, to uh, Orlock? I think I just noticed that this entire episode, we've been saying all these names in different ways multiple times. I think I've been saying Gogol and Gogol, and I've been saying Orlack and Orlock, and I really don't know which one is right at this point. <laughs> As for Orlock, isn't that the name of the vampire in Nosferatu? Oh, yeah. Count Orlock. Yeah, it yeah. is. Uh, Max Shrek, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. Let's see. Is it spelled the same? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I think different it's with spell. a K, isn't it? Yeah. And, of course, I think uh, I think Orlock was – they chose that name because they didn't have the rights to Dracula. So right. they're like, all right, come up with something else. <laughs> they should have used Alucard <laughs> or Dr. Acula in the Dr. Acula. That would have been good. So there's another thing I wanted to talk about in this movie that I thought was interesting is that it it features a couple of poems that are by two different Brownings. Uh, There are parts of the movie where uh, Gogol quotes poetry. The first I noticed was there's a part where he's – I think he's – pining for for Yvonne you know he's mm-hmm. he's feeling despondent because he loves her and uh and she's married to another and he says uh he starts reading a quote from a book it sounded familiar to me and I looked it up and I think the quote is from a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning the the English poet uh sonnets from the Portuguese 7 it's often known by its first line which is the face of all the world has changed i think and the lines are like um the face of all the world has changed, I think, since first I heard the footsteps of thy soul move still, O oh, still, beside me, as they stole betwixt me and the dreadful outer brink of obvious death, where I, who thought to sink, was caught up into love and taught the whole of life in a new rhythm. Uh, and it goes on from there, but that that's the part that has what he reads. And then later in the film, I I thought this was pretty interesting on the screenwriter's part. He quotes a poem when he is trying to murder Yvonne, he he (laughs) starts to strangle her with the braids of her own hair. Uh, And as he's leaning over Francis Drake, I think she has fainted at this point. And he quotes from the poem Porphyria's lover by Elizabeth Barrett Browning's husband, the poet Robert Browning. And this is a line, you may have read this poem in school, it's pretty famous. Uh, he, it, 
in the poem, the speaker is talking about a murder he committed, having murdered his lover. And he says, I found a thing to do, and all her hair in one long yellow string I wound, three times her little throat around, and strangled her. No pain felt she. I am quite sure she felt no pain. As a shut bud that holds a bee, I warily opened her lids again, laughed the blue eyes without a stain." Yeah, the, I, I, this is a part of just that. I mean, the, the whole movie is wonderful, but this last stretch is just excellent. And, uh, and you know, where he recites this poem while he's going to strangle her while she's unconscious as uh, as uh, as uh, Orlock, uh, um, Stephen Orlock and the others are trying to beat down the door. Mm hmm. But then I guess Gogol is undone by his own work. In addition to becoming a, a, an evil murderer, he also made the mistake of giving Stephen Orlock hands that are really good at killing from a distance. Yeah. Right. He uh, so or Orlack sort of reaches through the the grate in the door and throws a knife and sticks it in Gogol's back, and then I don't I guess somehow right after that they get through the door anyway. You know, it also drives home why the hands of Orlock isn't a good title for this either, because it's basically the hands of Rollo. That's what this this that's what's in the film. The hands of Orlock oh. are lost pretty early on, unless you're that. getting deep and wondering about like who owns the hands. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. In the end, also, it is mad love. It is about mad characters going mad and trying to figure out how love works. So there is a thing I noticed about this movie as it was on Amazon Prime. Amazon declares this film to be rated PG-13. And I was uh, like, how did Mad Love end up rated PG-13 when movie ratings had not been invented yet? Or I, I don't think there were any kinds of ratings. If there were, they weren't the system we have now. And certainly not the PG-13 rating, which was not invented till the 1980s. I looked it up. The first PG-13 film was Red Dawn. <laughs> They must have. Uh, my my only guess here is they must have accidentally pulled the rating off of 1995's Mad Love that we mentioned earlier, unrelated film, but that was rated PG-13 oh, in the era of, in which that rating actually existed. Or it, it would be horrible, I think, if they are going back and applying MPAA ratings to like pre-code movies. Mm -hmm. Just yeah, don't even try. <laughs> Now, you might be wondering, well, where can I watch Mad Love? We already mentioned uh, uh, checking it out on, on Amazon Prime. I found that you can pretty much uh, rent or buy digitally Mad Love anywhere that you would rent or buy a movie. Mm -hmm. You can also find it on DVD, sometimes thrown unlovingly into a multi-pack alongside far more forgotten films of the era. Uh, I watched it on a nice DVD edition that I rented from Videodrome here in Atlanta. They had a nice historical commentary track. I mean, it was clearly somebody sort of reading notes about the film, mm -hmm. uh, but, but it was quite interesting. I think this was from the Legends of Horror box set. Oh, interesting. Yeah. As, as far as I know, there's not a Blu-ray of this film, at least not yet. I, I didn't see one. Okay, one last question before we wrap it up. What does Stephen Orlack do the rest of his life? So he maybe he just can't play piano ever again, but he's good at throwing knives. Does that become his new profession? Like they're reunited at the end. Yvonne is saved. They embrace. Oh, we're all right now. And I guess I will enter my life in the circus as a knife thrower. Well, you know, I so identified with Dr. Gogol that I, after he was dead, I was just kind of like, all right. It doesn't matter, you know, uh, but but I did think about it more after you brought it up. And, yeah, I guess I imagine him taking up knife throwing, professional knife throwing, mm -hmm. and uh, that becomes like his new traveling act. And maybe she gets to go back into theater. And, uh, you know, because now it's like his his profession is more aligned with hers. Right. 
Maybe oh, they work together yes. and they do a show together. Okay, I see. Yeah, they do a stage show where he throws knives and she screams while the knives are thrown. The fabulous Orlocks, uh, <laughs> Orlocks, <laughs> coming to coming to a, a theater tent near you. I love it. Okay, we wrap up here. Yeah, let's go ahead and wrap up this uh, edition of Weird House Cinema. Uh, obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody out there. Uh, did Did you uh, enjoy Mad Love? Uh, have you Have you watched it? What do you think of it? Do you agree with this? Disagree with this? Do you have additional insights that we may have missed? Uh, let us know. We'd also love to hear from you. Do you Do you feel like this is a, a good use of our time uh, producing <laughs> episodes of Weird House Cinema? We've heard uh, both ways so far. Have we? Maybe I'm. I'm yeah. just. I'm. I'm blind to the criticism, but I haven't noticed anybody saying not to. Well, I don't know. You know we we heard from one person who said this was not for them. But okay. Well, that's and that's understandable. If this show, if this, if the Friday night uh, uh, Weird Al Cinema isn't for you, uh, just stick to the stuff to blow your mind. Uh, our our uh, feelings will not be hurt. Uh, but let us know either way. We're 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 excited to to hear from our listeners. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Again, Tuesdays and Thursdays, you get the uh, core episodes. And then on Fridays, we've, we're dishing out some weird house cinema. If you want to find us really quickly, you can just go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That will shoot you over to the iHeart page for our show. There's a button on there for a store. You can go there if you want to buy a t-shirt or a sticker with some sort of uh, you know design or our logo on. It. I will say we have a new shirt design in there by uh, Joe Mruck, uh, a listener uh, of the show, uh, who's also a self-employed illustrator. Um, you, know, you can find out more about his work at redbuffalo.org. But he created this wonderful shirt that's a, a Pandora motif, Pandora opening this box of interesting, challenging, and dangerous ideas, various show topics swirling around her. Um, yeah, beautiful design. You can get it on a shirt or a sticker or a you know poster type thing. Uh, so go check that out. You can just click on the store button and it'll take you uh, right to it. Maybe we'll get a Sausage Man shirt next. <laughs> we One can only, can only hope. hope. <laughs> Something with, with Sausage Man and, and, and Gogol as Orlock together. I don't know. The or as Rolo together. Man. <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. Okay. Anyway, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 